Let's pray together. Lord, we live in a time that is uh, difficult. I suppose that's always been true in one way or another. But what we see today, Lord, is uh, things aligning in our world, in our own lives. What you said is going to happen just before the rapture happens, before the tribulation starts. Or we all need to be really aware of that. So we pray the Spirit would be enlivening us to exactly how we're supposed to be behaving in this day and age. In anticipation, great anticipation and joy and rejoicing in the fact that we're about to come home to you. But also, Lord, that we are experiencing a time when the time is very short. For many people we know don't know you or maybe are only briefly acquainted with you and haven't actually made the commitment to accept you as Lord and Savior. So Lord, we pray that you would enliven us to do that even more, to share the gospel wherever we go. And Lord, we rely on your spirit to do that for us. And he gives us wisdom when we ask for it. He gives us the way to respond to people because he gives us words to say. He promised us that you do that. So whenever situation arises, we are given those words by the Spirit to share properly. And Lord, we also know that you enlighten us as far as what your word means and how it applies to our lives. We also know life is short. <clears throat> short. Life is brief. And we lose people along the way. But those we know that know you as Savior, we know we'll see you again. So Lord, we pray that uh, the message today from Hebrews 11 would be meaningful. It would be uh, something that we can really appreciate in our lives and appreciate it because it goes back so far. Your promises are always fulfilled. You never lie. You always fulfill what you say. And we praise you for that, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're in verses 20, 21, and 22. Now, we've gone through a progression of an awful lot of very important patriarchs, and these three are no less important, of course, because we're talking today about Isaac, Jacob, and John, Joseph. Excuse me. But we need to start out uh, talking about something that we don't necessarily want to talk about, but let's do it anyway, and that is... God's glorified when his people leave this world triumphantly. Why? Because when the Holy Spirit triumphs over the flesh, when the world's gladly left behind for heaven, and when there's anticipation and glory in our eyes as we enter the presence of the Lord, our dying is what? Pleasing to the Lord. It says in Psalm 116, 15, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his holy saints, his godly ones. Matthew Henry. Has anybody ever heard of Matthew Henry? If you haven't, you should read a little bit. But he was a late 17th, early 18th century preacher in England. He was actually from Wales, but he was pre preached in England. He was a nonconformist minister. That was a, that was a uh, denomination back then, nonconformist. I think I would have been one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Just the name of it just fits me. Anyway, he was a nonconformist minister, and he wrote his well-known six-volume commentary on the Bible. I have a copy of that. You should get that. It's really good. His sermons and his commentary are just as, just as relevant today as they were the day he wrote them. But he said this. 
This is from Matthew Henry. Though the grace of faith is of universal use throughout the Christian's life, yet it's especially so when we come to die. Faith has its great work to do at the very last, to help believers to finish well, to die to the Lord so as to honor God by patience, hope, and joy, so as to leave a witness behind them of the truth of God's word and the excellency of his ways, unquote. So these three patriarchs that are mentioned in verses 20, 21, and 22 in Hebrews 11 illustrate the power of faith and the power of faith when facing death. Now, we tend to think of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph as, uh, I don't know, models. I, I consider them one of the patriarchs. You know, they, they're the models of the life of faith. That's not actually true. They had their ups and downs, just like everybody else does. You know, most people in the Bible, as a matter of fact, all of them, I think, except Jesus, had their ups and downs. They had their failings. Well, these guys did too. But here in chapter 11, the, the heroes of the faith chapter, basically, uh, the emphasis is on the faith that these three had at the end of their life. And that's the important thing here. Each man faced death full and confident in their faith. But what makes dying in their faith so important for these three guys? We will look at all three of them in, in succession, obviously, in those three verses. What's interesting about this, these three and also of Abraham, their father, was that these three died without seeing the fulfillment of God's promises. They passed on to their children their faith, then their children by faith passed on to their children their faith, and so on. So what promises were they passing on? Well, basically the Abrahamic covenant. What was that? Well, here are three things of the Abrahamic covenant they were passing on. Number one, possession of the land. That was the land of promise. Canaan, in other words. Number two, the creation of a great nation that Abraham was promised. A great nation would rise from him. And number three, the blessings that the whole world would be blessed through Israel. So Abraham didn't see any of those things. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph didn't see any of those things. That's why they had great faith. They were confident in God's word that it would happen. And then, of course, it has. They believed what they had never seen. Do we do that? Absolutely. Have we ever seen Jesus? Have you ever seen God? Have you ever seen the Holy Spirit? No. But we know they're there. We know for sure. They passed on what they had never seen to their children, and we've done that. Hopefully everybody has done that. And whether the children accepted it or not is something that we can't say unless... We know for sure, and sometimes we don't know for sure. That's up to them. You know, salvation is an individual thing. But the deal here is these men did not die in despair of unfulfilled promises. They knew they were going to happen. In perfect peace, they died, even knowing unfulfilled promises of God. They knew God was still going to come through. So they died defeating death, knowing God promises wouldn't die. So let's start with verse 20. It says in chapter 11, verse 20, with eyes of faith, Isaac 
looking far into the future, invoked blessings upon Jacob and Esau. Isaac led an interesting life. He actually, this is interesting, he actually lived longer than any of those other, including Abraham. He lived the longest of all four. He lived 180 years. Abraham lived 175 years. Jacob lived 147 years, and Joseph 110. Remember, Sarah died at 127. But Isaac has less space in the book of Genesis than all those other three. He only has about two and a half chapters. The others have as many as, I think each one of them has about 12 chapters devoted to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Joseph. But Isaac has very few. What does that mean? I don't mean that, I think that means much. It just means he had led a less dramatic life, perhaps. Probably less spectacular life, Isaac. Mm -hmm other than the fact that he was almost sacrificed by his father on the altar. <laughs> That's kind of spectacular. But, but he was only about 20 years old when that happened. Uh, he was basically quiet and passive for the most part. You know, because of a famine in Canaan, Isaac moved his family to Gerar. That's a town that's in Galilee. Um, it's, uh, excuse me, in Gaza. Think about Gaza today. Gaza is the focus of all of this horrible stuff going on in Israel. That's a the land of the Philistines. Okay, it's the same land. And so Gerar is one of the cities in central Gaza today. And that's where he moved. And he moved there because of the famine in Canaan. So he went to that land, the land of the Philistines, which apparently wasn't experiencing the famine. And that's where he lived for a while. And while he was there, God spoke to him about the promises to come. And I'm going to read you from Genesis chapter 26, what, he, what God said to him at that particular point in time. He said, and there was a famine in the land, other than the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land which I will tell you. And he's given, have faith in me, I'm going to tell you where to go. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. And he said, dwell temporarily in this land, and I will be with you and will favor you with blessings. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants to multiply as the stars of the heavens, and will give to your posterity all the lands and the kingdoms and by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, and by him bless themselves. And there you go. That's the Abrahamic covenant. So, covenant promises made to Abraham were passed on to Isaac because they hadn't come to pass yet. Now, with the first sign of danger, what happened to Isaac? He proved faithless. How did he do that? That sounds like his dad. What was the problem? Well, Rebecca was the problem. Remember that? Abimelech wanted Rebecca. And so he took her. Fortunately, he didn't do anything at the time, but Abraham did the same thing. If you remember, Isaac claimed that Rebecca was his sister, so he didn't want to get killed, you know, because he said, if, if they know she's my wife, she's beautiful, the king of the Philistines might want to have her anyway, so he'll just kill me, then he can take her. So he told King Abimelech that that was his sister. Abraham had done the same thing with Sarah, remember? The difference is, Sarah was Abraham's sister, so he didn't lie. 
Rebecca is not Isaac's sister. <laughs> She's a cousin, but that's all. So Isaac seems to be more concerned about himself than Rebecca, right? Now, Abraham had done the same, like I said. And Abimelech, though, seemed to be the, the most moral guy in this group here, uh, certainly of, of Isaac, because at that particular time, what did Abimelech say? This is kind of interesting, too. I've got too many place marks in my Bible. I keep falling out. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is meant to be able me to be able to go back to where I need to be quickly, and that doesn't work all the time. Abimelech, in verse 10, said, when he found out that Rebekah was actually Isaac's wife, Abimelech said, what is this you've done to us? One of the men might have easily lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt and sin upon us. A Philistine said that. Wow. Isaac didn't seem to be bothered about lying about, that, about Rebecca. But. So the deal here is he wasn't all that faithful. He was actually acting in the wrong way at this particular point. God's grace prevailed because he raised up Abimelech to act like Isaac should have, basically. But eventually, Isaac did come back to the promised land, to a place called Beersheba. By God's sovereign work, God brought him back to Beersheba. And then Isaac was spiritually weak, uh, but he made he became faithful toward the end of his life. And that's what made him different. Now, and Isaac was, was uh, partial back in his early days to his first son, his firstborn son, of course, who was Esau. And uh, he wanted to give him his blessing. Remember that story where Rebecca and, and Jacob plotted and fooled Isaac into thinking that Jacob was his son Esau. And so he got the blessing. Now, it's interesting. The younger became the one who would rule over the older. Then also when Joseph went away to Egypt, he became the younger who would rule over the older brothers. And then later, who else filled that same thing? David. He's the younger. Filled in over the other. It just happens over and over again. It's just, so God uses that example quite often. He picks the people who are the most capable. And he also puts a position, puts us in a position of saying, wait a minute, that goes against tradition. Yeah. Does tradition really matter? Not in God's eyes. It's God's way. So uh, Isaac became a reluctant patriarch, basically. But Genesis 28, we read that at the end of his life, when uh, he wanted to give a blessing, he had he gave it to the wrong person. He thought he was giving it to the right person, but God said otherwise. He gave the blessing to Jacob instead of Esau. Now, another one was uh, Joseph's two sons. Uh, exactly, and I'm getting to that when I get to Joseph. I will say that very thing. He'll do it again. That's exactly right. So, what it says there in in verse 20 of chapter 11, it says, "With faith, eyes of faith, Isaac, looking far into the future, invoked blessings upon Jacob and Esau, and he did." Now we'll go to Jacob's faith next. And that's verse 21. It says, prompted by faith, again, Jacob, looking far into the future, invoked blessing upon Jacob and Esau. 21 says, prompted by faith, Jacob, 
when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons, bowed in prayer over the top of his staff. Now, Jacob's life is very much like his father Isaac's life. He was up and down. Gee, has anybody in here experienced up and down in their lives? Sometimes walking by faith, sometimes by sight. Has anybody done that in their life? Goodness. How many times have we actually made presumptuous, not presumptuous, but the right word would be sporadic. Uh, the word's escaping me all of a sudden. Uh, spontaneous is not still the word I want. The word is, uh, well, it'll conceive, but there's another word for that. <laughs> We're all trying to help. It'll come, it'll come, it'll come. Yes. But unlike his father, Jacob did not try to replace God's plan. Jacob indulged in some subterfuge, of course. But now we go to Joseph, and he didn't do that. Actually, he started out that way. What was interesting was, you know, he had those dreams. <laughs> I think that was really funny. Uh, he said, told all of his brothers that he was going to rule over them when he was 17 years old. And they're going, right. <laughs> <laughs> then he did it again. And they said, we don't like this kid. We got to get rid of him. And that's what happened. Of course, God orchestrated that whole thing. We know that, right? But Joseph, like Jacob, was younger. Than his older brothers. Again, he was raised to prominence, probably the most prominent that you could possibly imagine. Imagine ruling over an entire nation with somebody like a pharaoh, who later on, you know, pharaohs were pretty, pretty nasty. But uh, this particular one seemed to be very compassionate and kind. And so he let Joseph take over and he took care of the famine. But Joseph, like Jacob, received a double blessing since both of his sons were blessed at the same time. But what's interesting about that is how it happened. That's what I want to share with you. We go to Genesis chapter 48. This is really cool. Mary and I actually read this one just recently. <clears throat> 48. We go all the way back to, uh, we'll start at 17. Now this is later on, you know, uh, Jacob has made it down to, uh, to Egypt. He's living in the land of Goshen. Joseph has been there for a long time. You know, he lived about four, about 20 years before he got that exalted position. And he'd gone through both the years of plenty and now most of the years of famine. So that's been a total, almost 40 years now, close to 35 anyway, years after he actually came down to Egypt. And uh, he has had a Egyptian wife, and now he has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Manasseh was born first, Ephraim second. So it says here in verse 17, when Joseph saw his father, well, I'll go back to 16, the redeeming angel who has redeemed me continually from every evil, bless the lads. This is, of course, uh, Jacob talking here. And he says, and let my name be perpetuated in them. This is 16. Having their names coupled with mine and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, 
and let them become a multitude in the midst of the earth. And what he had done is <clears throat> Joseph had brought his two sons over to his father who was dying. And he had put them in a certain way in front of him. But when he put, he put Manasseh on his right, and I think he put Ephraim on his left, meaning he would put his right hand out and bless Manasseh because he's firstborn. What did, what did uh, Jacob do? He did like this. He put his right hand on Ephraim's head and his left hand on Manasseh's head. And Joseph saw that and went, making a mistake, he says. Joseph said, not so, my father, for this is the first. This is the firstborn. Put your right hand upon his head. Manasseh, Manasseh is my firstborn. His father refused, knew what he was doing. He said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and shall be great. But his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So there we go, the same sort of thing. God is, seems like he wants to do that all the time. And I really like that because I'm an only child, so. <laughs> that explains a lot, yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> my mother was not supposed to have children. And they were, my mother and father were, were married 10 years before all of a sudden she became pregnant. So I'm, I'm a blessing. That's true. Yes. <laughs> you know me. I don't feel that way. I don't feel that way at all. <laughs> And then verse 20 says, and he blessed him that day, saying, by you shall Israel bless one another, saying, God made you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he said Ephraim before Manasseh. So there you go. So you kind of go, wow, this is really strange, isn't it? Well, not really. God does that quite often. But once again, Jacob's on his deathbed, and he's really showing his faith in God. He's being led by God. God he's listening to God, doing what he had to do. See, so that's really strong faith to know the right thing to do, especially when you're at his age, about to die, 147 years old. And what's curious about that, you remember that? When he was uh, deceived by his two sons early in his life, he was 100 and, I think, what was he, 114, I believe it was? when that happened and he thought he was dying. And then he lived another 35 years. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Anyway. So now we come to Joseph. So we got Isaac died by faith at the end, had full faith when he died. Now Jacob has died, full faith at the end. He had his ups and downs, but full faith. Now we come to Joseph, 1122. It says, <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't get back to Hebrews. Actuated by faith, Joseph, when nearing the end of his life, referred to the promise of God for the departure of the Israelites out of Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his own bones. So see, he is acting again out of faith, knowing that the promise of the promised land, he would be buried in the promised land. So Joseph spent his entire life in Egypt, basically his entire adult life. He was fourth generation heir of promise, but he never even went there, much less inherited. As a matter of fact, this is an interesting thing to think about. When Jacob died, he asked his son, Joseph, to be sure to take his bones back to Israel, and he did. When Joseph died, they put his bones there, and then they kept them. They said, take me back. Well, how long did it take that to happen? 
about 300 years before he made it back because he stayed in Egypt until the Exodus. And then after the Exodus, they took his bones with them to take them back to the promised land. Then they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and Jacob, Joseph's bones wandered in the wilderness for 40 years too. So it wasn't until about 1400 before he actually had his bones buried in, in Israel. And, and he was born probably 200 years after Abraham. Abraham 2000 BC to 1400 BC. So it was a long time before he made his bones by Israel. Yeah. So because of the famine in Canaan, exactly none of Abraham's descendants, descendants of promise, actually lived in the promised land. Isn't that something? Joseph would be satisfied only if his bones would be buried there, and they were. And at the Exodus, like I said, they, he got carted around for a long time. We'll go back to Genesis chapter 50 and read 24, 25, and 26. It says there, Joseph said to his brethren, I'm going to die. 110 years old. I don't notice how lifestyle, lifestyles or your life uh, lengths is decreasing. I'm going to die, and God will surely visit you, bring you out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to give to you. And Joseph took an oath of the sons of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, should carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him. Whoa. Interesting. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Why does I say, whoa? Jews don't do that. They don't embalm anybody. They buried them the same day they died. But here it says they embalmed him because the Egyptians did that. But I guess it wasn't just his bones that made it back. His whole preserved body made it back too. So all three of these men believed God in the face of death. For hundreds, perhaps thousands of years, courts of law have said that a man's dying words you can take for truth. Isn't that interesting? Now, I don't know whether that could actually be 100% true, but that's the way the courts have re received it. Man's dying words were considered to be true. So with the testimony of faith. A Christian who fears death has a weakness in his faith. For to die in Christ is to be ushered into the presence of God. So I'm going to end this short lesson this morning because we don't want to go too fast through this. I mean, we could we could basically jump over a lot of very meaningful things if we do that. And I don't want to do that. So I'm going to read to you two different verses from the new Testament. First one is in Philippians chapter one, verses 19 through 21. And that says, yes. And I shall rejoice hereafter also for I am well assured and indeed know that through your prayers and a bountiful supply of the G Spirit of Christ Jesus, this will turn out for my preservation, the spiritual health and welfare of my own soul, and avail toward the saving work of the gospel. So I'm reading from the Amplified. <clears throat> this is verse 20. This is in keeping with my own eager desire and persistent expectation and hope. I shall not disgrace myself, nor be put to shame in anything, but that with the utmost freedom of speech and unfailing courage, now as always, heretofore, 
Christ the Messiah will be magnified, get glory and praise in this body of mine and be boldly exalted in, in my person, whether through life or through death. For to me is to, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And the other one's in 1 Corinthians 15, and you know, I really like this one because it refers to something that we're all looking forward to as well. But we'll start with verse 50 in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15. It says, well, I tell you this, brethren, it's again the same guy talking, of course, Paul. He says, I tell you this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot become partakers of eternal salvation and inherit and share in the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot. Nor does the perishable, that which is decaying, inherit or share in the imperishable, the immortal. Take notice, exclamation point. That's what it says. It says, I tell you a mystery, a secret truth, an event decreed by the hidden purpose and counsel of God. We shall not all fall asleep in death, but we shall all be changed, transformed, in, the, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trumpet call, for a trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, free and immune from decay, and we shall be changed, transformed. For this perishable must be put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable puts on the imperishable and this capable or that was capable of dying, puts on freedom from death, then shall be fulfilled the scripture that says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your state? Isn't that cool? So we can take, I think, great interest in the death of the patriarch because they didn't see anything near how much we've seen. Look how much we've seen that they didn't see. So there's still things we haven't seen yet, too. So we ought to take, by example, what they did. And we have their witness that they stayed until death, and they saw. So we can do the same. I think that's fascinating. I think what we see today, too, is, is and refer once again to rapture and to prophecy, is the fact that we know from what God has said that we are on the verge of seeing some spectacular things. Probably spectacular in a good way and most, most probably some spectacular in a bad way. You know, Trump said the other day, he said there's a 100% chance that we're going to be attacked in our country, within our country. And I agree with that. Why? Because there's 20 million foreigners that came in free to do whatever they want. As a matter of fact, they've been given $10,000 credit cards, They've been given $1,000 a month in New York. No, it's a week, I'm sorry. It's $1,000 a week to let them do whatever they want to do. Just, it's, who in the world runs things today? It's Satan runs things today. So we are going to see some spectacular things. Pray, because we live in a state that most, most of those guys would stay away from, I feel sure. But that doesn't mean we're totally immune. But most people know that Texans and some other states would be pretty dangerous to do some of the stuff they do. But there are an awful lot of states where it's okay because they'll let them do it.
So be in prayer. But we are on the verge of seeing some really good things come our way also. And those good things start with the rapture. And I'll, we'll talk about that on, on Sunday night. Okay. Any comments this morning? Nope. Let's pray then. Lord God, we, uh, we do stand in awe of you because that's the true meaning of the word. And you're the only, only entity in the entire universe that actually deserves that word, awe. We don't understand completely, but we know you love us. And we know that what you've done for us is done in love because we know your son. We know he died for our sins. We know we can accept that freely. But the first thing we have to actually do is be humble. We realize that we can't do anything to deserve salvation. Then it's a free gift. But then we're supposed to be workers. We're supposed to be, as our pastor was talking about this morning, be doers of the word. We work out our salvation. That has nothing to do with earning it. It just is a proof that we actually are saved. We're actually doing something that <clears throat> is beneficial eternally. So we praise you for that, too, the opportunities to do that very thing. And thank you for men that have been recorded in the Word as being heroes, champions, triumphant men of the faith, living lives like we live, ups and downs, but actually knowing that faith takes over. Faith is the most important thing. And we see those examples in men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So praise you for them, Lord. <clears throat> Thank you for their example. Help us to learn to be as confident as we can and we should be. Because knowing what Jesus did is forever. And we have no reason to doubt. Because your promises are always Thank you, Lord. Be with us as we go through this week, Lord. Help us to be attentive to you, attentive to the world, attentive to the application of the word to our lives and to the world so that we have that full assurance that we can pass on to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.